On the record, flips to the B-side. Good morning. I'm Mia Lobel, and you're listening to B-Side. This month, we're talking about pets. Those furry, feathery, and scaly creatures that touch so many people's lives. How they're loved, and how they're lost. As On the Record flips to the B-Side. better place to find loving pet owners than at a dog park. B-Side crew members Lissa Mudd, Tamara Keith, and I visited the Ohlone Dog Park in North Berkeley to talk to some dog lovers about what makes their animal so special. Can you sort of explain the human-dog relationship? Is there something special about it? Well, I'm not going to, I don't want to sound like too cheesy, but um, before I got Sylvester... I mean, I would see people bonding with their animals, but I never knew how much I would love him until after I got him. I just love him so much. It's really quite an incredible experience. Cynthia Cahill and Lee Fondakowski say other pets just can't compare to their much-loved mutt, Sylvester. I have a cat at home who's also really great and will come running when I come home and come to the door and say hi and stuff like that. But uh, it's different with a dog. They're very excited to see you. I mean, you're like the greatest person in the world. Oh, and you're home, and they're wiggling around, and the tail's wagging. And it's really, it's like a big ego stroke, you know, that they're so demonstrative in their affection. It's like unconditional love. They're like special beings. They're very spiritual beings, I think, because they really do just love. They have so much love to give. Do you feed them special food and stuff, then? Um, I have a weakness for feeding him people food. I know it's probably not really good for him, but I kind of slip him things now and then. But, like, this morning, for example, we went to breakfast, and he got some chicken sausage, so. Under the table? No. To To go. She orders a side of sausage to go, and then we feed it to him in the car. He's a little spoiled, I guess. It's hard to imagine having to let go of a relationship like that. And, well, I hate to be the one to say it, but there will come a time when Cynthia and Lee will have to say goodbye to little Sylvie. Everyone has their own way of paying their last respects to a favorite animal. There are those who flush Goldie the goldfish down the toilet and those who bury Fido the mutt under a shrub in the backyard without a marker. Others opt for pet cemeteries. For generations, San Franciscans have been burying their beloved family pets in a small weedy plot at the Presidio, the city's old army base. Besides Lissa Mudd brings us this tour. The Presidio Pet Cemetery sits on a grassy hillside overlooking the bay. It's right under a busy overpass that leads to the Golden Gate Bridge. You can hear the cars and trucks overhead. It may not be a quiet resting spot, but it's beautiful, with views of the bridge and Angel Island. I think if I were a pet, this is the place I'd want to be buried. That's Ron Sunshine, spokesman for the Presidio Trust and my tour guide. A sign near the entrance sums up the feeling of this place. It says, The love of these pets will never be forgotten. All around us in the overgrown grass are little tombstones. Some are carved marble, but most are homemade, just plywood painted with names and epitaphs. There's even a tomb of the unknown pet. It has a red heart on it. Ron shows me some of his favorite graves. Bilbo Baggins is a canary. And then right next to Bilbo is... Here lies some great hamsters, Tweak and Buffy. 
Oops, Monkey the Cat. This is kind of cool. That is Sunny. I'm not sure if that... I want to say that that's a fish, but you know, I, I, who knows? As we walk among the graves, he tells me the cemetery started in the 1940s as a place where military families stationed at the Presidio Army Base could bury their family pets. Officially, the last burial was in 1994, the year the base closed down and military families moved away. But a lot of the graves are more recent than that. Ron says even non-military people who've heard of the cemetery through word of mouth gravitate here after they lose a pet. He says it's comforting to lay the family dog to rest among other well-loved critters. You know, as, as odd as this sounds, I'm sure there are a few midnight burials, and as you can see right over here by this tree, there is a shovel. And there is there's a, uh, a tombstone that is just waiting for some verbiage. Max was a faithful friend for 15 years. Ribs, the wonder collie, died on August 2, 1962, when his owner was away in Iceland. A dog named Trouble was no trouble at all. Nearby, there are graves for Bambi and Blondie, a cat named Dumbo, Knucklehead the Parakeet, and Smudge, a truly noble character. Then there's Macaroni Heart. The tombstone says Macaroni Heart was Christine's fish. Here's Charlie, uh, was someone's favorite pet. He was my bird. Well, Pee-wee was always good because it's got one of those dust-to-dust, man-to-man. And it, unfortunately, as you can see, Pee-wee only lived for about six months. Pee-wee may have been a rat or even an iguana. The tombstone doesn't say, and Ron's not sure. No matter the species, every pet here was loved. People leave dog bones and flags and flowers on the graves. Some pet owners have written poems on them, too. Ron comes across one of the most elaborate. It's a pink marble gravestone with writing etched on it. Oh, it's Mr. Twister. Mr. Twister died here on October 6th of 1988. And it says, he will be in my heart wherever he goes. My (laughs) wonderful, spelled O-N-E, little man in basset clothes. And it's signed, Ken. So, I mean, I think you could probably wander through here on any given day and be kind of taken by some of the, by just what you see, not only here in the, in the pet cemetery, but some of the words, the poetry that people have written about their, their pets. On the back of Mr. Twister's headstone, Ken engraved another sentiment. P.S. He was like a beautiful flower that bloomed for 13 years. He was the end of my rainbow. The thing about the Pet cemetery is it's one of the only places where people can unabashedly proclaim how much they love their pets. Where else could you write such a flowery, heartfelt elegy to your basset hound? For B-Side, I'm Lissa Mudd at the Presidio Pet Cemetery. Once in a while, I still go out in my parents' backyard in upstate New York to visit the grave of my dearly departed little hamster, Munchkin. But what happens when a pet runs away or is lost without a trace? 
with no chance for a final goodbye. Besides, Emily Gunnison knows this experience all too well. The first time I saw the South Yuba River was on one of those warm, clear days in November that make you think summer never really leaves California. I was writing my master's thesis about the river, and I took my family's golden retriever, Quincy, when I did my research. I parked the car where Highway 49 crosses the river near Nevada City, up in the foothills. Quincy and I hiked a skinny, crooked trail along the steep bank. When we were hot and tired, we slid down to where the river is flanked by enormous granite boulders, a giant obstacle course of rocks. We jumped into and quickly out of the cold water, then sat on the rocks to dry, content and sleepy, reptiles in the afternoon sun. In January, when Quincy and I returned to do more research, the river was ugly and muddy, and the current was fast. In retrospect, I shouldn't have taken him up the trail, but I did. I unclipped the leash, and Quincy ran down the bank so fast that he couldn't stop himself. I called his name, and when he turned around, his paws slipped on the rocks. He looked up at me, and then he slid into the water, just like that. The current was so strong that his head went under right away. He surfaced again for a moment, but as he tried to make his way toward the bank, the river reached out for him again and swept him away. The last I saw of my dog was his red head barely above the water, vanishing around the bend toward the Highway 49 bridge. I completely lost my mind that afternoon, and even now I have a hard time conjuring all the things that happened. I remember acknowledging a man on the bridge who pointed to where he had seen Quincy get trapped beneath a rapid and never come up again. The man wore a plaid shirt and had a round but severe face. I remember shedding the vest I was wearing and dropping my hat and my camera. Take these. Give me back my dog. I remember sitting on the rocks under the bridge, crying, absolutely screaming at the river. The clouds had threatened rain all day, and I watched the sky brighten for an instant before it started to pour. I remember noticing the single raindrops against the sky and the dark line of trees on the other bank. The man from the bridge crawled down to where I was perched and told me I had to come back up, that the rain was making the rocks too slippery, that the evening was coming. The river did not give me my dog. I never found his body. And that afternoon, I sat in my car, shaking, sobbing, trying to figure out how I could turn the key in the ignition and drive away with a leash and a dog biscuit on the seat next to me and say goodbye to my dog without so much as a pat on his beautiful lost head. Emily Gunnison teaches English at Berkeley High School. When a pet dies, the grief can be just as extreme as with the loss of a human relative. As B-Sides Tamara Keith found out, for people having trouble dealing with those emotions, help is just a phone call away. Pet Loss Support Hotline, this is Allie. May I help you? 22-year-old Allie Kirby is a first-year veterinary student at UC Davis. On this night, she's answering the phones for the school's Pet Loss Support Hotline. What was this kitty's name? Tom. <laughs> Allie's first call comes from a Bay Area woman whose cat, Tom, died suddenly at the age of three. 
Well, it sounds like you did everything in your power to help Tom out. You gave him a very good life, although it was short. It's hard to lose your best friend, isn't it? Like all of the hotline's counselors, Allie offers advice and condolences, but mostly she just listens. Can you do me a favor? Can you say to yourself it is normal to cry over someone I love? Can you say that? Yeah. Did you love Tom? Yes. So don't let anyone tell you that it's not normal to be feeling the feelings that you have. And don't ever try to doubt the actual vitality of these emotions. Allie suggests that the caller make a scrapbook to memorialize her cat. Then she tells the woman about some local support groups, and 20 minutes after it began, the call is over. Allie says most of her calls are similar to this one. They see that pet every day. They're responsible for that pet. They feed them. They bathe them. That It's an unconditional love factor that a lot of human beings will never have with another human being. And so it's hard not to give value to that relationship. UC Davis staffer Bonnie Mater created the hotline more than a decade ago. Each year, student counselors take in hundreds of calls from people in all reaches of the country. The students then follow up with a handwritten letter. Mater says a large part of what the hotline does is help people understand that their emotions are legitimate. Some people feel very shy and private about how deeply they feel attached to their animal, and they're a little embarrassed by that because, after all, you know, how could you be so attached? It was just an animal sort of thing. And it's not just dogs and cats. People call in about all varieties of animals, from gerbils to horses. Third-year veterinary student Jamie Clevenger is still haunted by a call she took several months ago from a man in Utah. The caller managed a horse ranch. One of the horses was born with a neurological disorder that prevented it from swallowing correctly, so the man had been feeding it by hand with a bottle three times a day. This went on for seven months until he took the horse into a veterinary clinic for an exam. Jamie says it's there that something went horribly wrong. In the process of the exam, the foal somehow, as the man described it, suffocated and wasn't able to properly swallow and then started choking and died. And he could hear it in the other room, but he couldn't go in and save his foal. And so the whole thing was very traumatic for him. Jamie says the caller was very attached to the young horse, almost like it was a son. But she says the man couldn't understand how he could be so upset. The man had started crying, like, midway through our conversation. And he was very distraught about the fact that he was crying. He wasn't really, you know, an emotional man. And he hung up, unfortunately, before I could get his name or his address. So, yeah, I've definitely thought about that one and wished that I could go back and talk to him again. For each of the student volunteers, there's at least one conversation that will always be with them. For Allie Kirby, this call is one she'll never forget. Life Support Hotline, this is Allie. May I help you? The caller, an elderly housebound woman, had recently lost her dog of 13 years. The German Shepherd had helped her through a difficult time in her life, and his death was almost too much for her to handle. After the dog died, she decided to have him cremated, and she planned to have his ashes buried with her when she eventually passed away. But the veterinarian mistagged the body. The dog was mixed up with another animal. His ashes were lost. This is a lot of things to be dealing with at one time. 
I mean, you lost a huge part of your life. Soon, Allie realizes that the caller might be suicidal. You're eating, right? Not really. Okay. Are you getting enough sleep? No, you're not. Because um, I'm really worried about your health. Allie reaches for the phone book and, while still listening to the caller, looks for the number for a suicide prevention hotline. She gives the caller information about the suicide line and asks for a promise. Can you make me a promise not to hurt yourself in any way or shape or form? You make that promise to me? You promise? Okay. The woman pledges to take care of herself, to get the help she needs. Allie has done all she can. The phone call ends, and Allie is left wondering what will come next for the woman at the other end of the line. Allie will send her a handwritten letter, a list of books that might help, and some brochures. Then the phone rings again. For B-Side, I'm Tamara Keith in Davis. The UC Davis Pet Support Hotline can be reached by calling 1-800-565-1526. If you missed that number or for more information about the line and other pet loss support options, check out our website at bside-radio.org. You're listening to KALX 90.7 FM. Stick around as On the Record flips to the B-side. You're listening to B-side. I'm Mia Lobel, and this month we're talking about pets. For some added perspective on this topic, our crew visited one of Berkeley's most popular dog parks. There, we met Joe and Gabriel, and their dogs, Rufus and Daisy. You lose a lot of freedoms when you get dogs, yeah. but you gain a lot of things also. So yes, it's, it's, it's a lot it's of work. True, huh? they are. Yeah. A lot of work. We took her cross-country with us twice. Daisy is an 85-pound black Labrador who likes to chew things, including the backseat of Joe and Gabriel's car. But like with any good family member, they say it's easy to forgive and forget. She was awesome. She went to Mount Rushmore. <laughs> we sat her up on the thing and like took pictures. It was great. <laughs> like the dwarf that like goes all around the world. Yeah, she's in with we all do. the we precedents. We have her at the St. Louis Arch. We have her at Mount Rushmore. We have her in like Great Smokies in Tennessee. <laughs> we have pictures of her everywhere. <laughs> I think there's more pictures of her than there are of us. <laughs> Probably. There's this theory that if people spend enough time with their pets, they actually start to resemble them. Or is it the other way around? Whichever it is, it can be amusing and sometimes disturbing to see how much pet owners have in common with their charges. B-side commentator Dave Gilson recalls a pet-sitting job that revealed the stranger side of this symbiotic relationship. Some names have been changed to protect the innocent. Lois Butler was a single middle-aged woman who lived in a Victorian house in San Francisco's Pacific Heights. She had two pets, an emaciated Siamese cat named Bluebell and a collie of indeterminate gender named Sasha. When I was 15, Mrs. Butler hired me as her pet sitter. The job was simple enough. When Mrs. Butler flitted off to Santa Barbara or Napa for the weekend, 
I came by and put out food and walked the dog. Sasha and Bluebell were neurotic and half-mad, but I could hardly blame them for their condition. It was harder to figure out how Mrs. Butler had gotten that way. I didn't know much about her, except that she was from a rich San Francisco family. I'd heard a rumor that she was a kleptomaniac. Supposedly, the big department stores downtown didn't even bother to stop her when she set off their security alarms. They just sent her family the bill. From what I saw, she sure wasn't shoplifting pet supplies. Sasha and Bluebell subsisted on generic pet food while being confined in her dining room, a musty space decorated with antique furniture and covered by wall-to-wall clear plastic sheeting. This was because Bluebell's sight was failing, and she couldn't reliably find the litter box. And though she was blind, she was still quite agile. Every time I came by to take care of her, I spent ten minutes looking under tables and on top of chairs for her latest accomplishment. Like anyone who's been forced to live with an incontinent cellmate, Sasha spent its days growling with disgust and gnawing itself compulsively. The indignity was only compounded when Mrs. Butler made it wear one of those plastic radar dish collars. Supposedly, animals never think about suicide, but I think Sasha was an exception. Mrs. Butler was prepared for this kind of eventuality. She had instructed me that if Sasha died, I was to take the body to the vet for cremation. And if Bluebell died, I was to freeze her body so Mrs. Butler could dispose of it as she saw fit. And if I should die, she told me, you are to give away the dog and have the cat put to sleep. Bluebell simply can't live without me. I didn't ask whether Mrs. Butler wanted her corpse frozen. I assumed she'd made arrangements with someone else. The last time I worked for Mrs. Butler, she headed off for Miami Beach for a week of sun, sand, and I presume, shoplifting. A day before she was supposed to return, she called me. I'm horribly sick, she said. I'll have to extend my stay for several days. It was a long weekend, and I was going away, so I told her she'd have to find someone else to watch her pets. She thought about this for a moment and sighed, Well, I suppose I'll just have to put them down at the vet's. Put them down? I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Was she really asking me to put her pets to sleep all because she couldn't find another pet sitter? I tried to imagine what I would tell the vet. Uh, yeah, I'd like you to cremate this dog and freeze the cat. Right, the, the one hot, one cold special, please. Fortunately, it turned out Mrs. Butler just wanted to board the pets with the vet until she returned. I felt sorry for Sasha and Bluebell as I watched them being put into tiny pens ringed with chain-link fence. But in a way, their temporary accommodations were better than what they were used to. Sasha got a few days alone, and Bluebell surely appreciated the drain in the middle of the floor. A few days later, I collected my money from Mrs. Butler, and I never saw her or Sasha or Bluebell again. It was okay. I felt like I'd seen enough, and they probably felt the same way. Dave Gelson now leads a pet-free existence in Berkeley. I hardly trust anyone to look after my pet bird, Amelia. One little slip-up, leaving the door open too long, and off she'd go, up and away into the wilds of nature. I would be devastated. And besides, talk about spoiled, she wouldn't last a day out there. But what if your pet escaped, found others of its kind, bred, and formed a whole new colony of wild animals? Believe it or not, it's happened before, and Mark Bittner of San Francisco has proof. I was doing this house cleaning job, and I looked out the window and there were these four parrots clinging to a feeder. Mark lives in San Francisco's Telegraph Hill neighborhood, 
off a tree-laden street far above the city's busy financial district. Having lived a pretty bohemian lifestyle, Mark was used to some of the stranger sights of San Francisco. But these jungle creatures were something entirely new. At first I couldn't even understand what I was looking at. It was so unusual. I didn't... When it dawned on me that there were parrots, I was flabbergasted. And then, just a few weeks later, I saw them in the trees here right outside my house. Mark set a bowl of sunflower seeds out on the balcony of his hilltop apartment, and sure enough, the wild parrots showed up. I was astonished. I was just shocked. And I was you know, like hoping they'd come back the next day, and they did. Soon, he was feeding them four to five times a day. They perched on his shoulders. They playfully pulled at his long hair and glasses. The already popular street where he lived became a kind of tourist stop. Everyone wanted to see the birdman of Telegraph Hill and his flock of wild parrots. But for Mark, who prefers to be called friend of the flock, the birds were not just entertainment. To him, they were a kind of calling. I think of the parrots as ambassadors from nature. Um, I was somebody who wanted to get into nature. I, I considered myself a nature lover. But I think I got, like a lot of people, I'm sort of jaded to the nature. I was jaded to the nature all around me. Mark came to San Francisco to be a musician, and when that didn't work out, he became somewhat aimless. He moved from place to place, living wherever he could rent-free, sometimes in alleyways, sometimes on rooftops, doing odd jobs to pay for food. And when he found the birds, or rather, when the birds found him, everything started to change. The birds became his life. He studied them daily, learning what they eat, where they live, and where they came from. A few had bands on their legs, and I was able to figure out over time that those were uh, import bands, quarantine bands. The birds, mostly red-headed conures native to South America, had been caught and shipped to the United States to be sold as pets. There are a lot of different theories as to how the parrots got out. I sort of go along with the idea that people were buying wild birds and uh, kind of surprised that they were wild. They were loud and they were biting, so they threw them out windows, things like that. These birds were never meant to be pets, Mark says. The few domesticated birds that do escape to the flock rarely last very long, with red-tailed hawks and other natural predators in the area. But the wild-caught birds and their offspring that make up the majority of the flock maintain their natural instincts, and that's why they've been able to survive in the wilds of San Francisco. The flock's 80 or so birds are unfazed by the chilly winter months, and they know how to find the pine nuts and wild blackberries and cherry blossoms that sustain them throughout the year. The seeds Mark feeds them are just sort of an added bonus. They're used to seeing all kinds of different animals in the forest, and I would just be another animal, but an unusual one in that he was handing out treats. <laughs> Though Mark feels very connected to the flock, he knows that the birds don't need him. He's left for long periods of time, and the flock always manages to find food elsewhere. When one of the birds is sick or injured, Mark does take them in to care for them. Right now he's living with Filbert, an orange-fronted conure who was found sick and abandoned in his neighborhood, and Phoenix, a red-headed conure from the flock who was injured when he flew into a window. Hey, Phoenix. Come on, big bird. I want to see the bottom. Yeah. Filbert is intensely jealous <laughs> of big bird because he wants all my attention. Right? Can you talk, Robert? Can you be crazy? Yeah. In the beginning, I was emotional about everything that happened. If a bird in the flock died, it felt like a huge setback to me. But now I'm more familiar with all that goes on in a, in a wild bird flock. And I don't think I get that emotional anymore.
There is an undeniable connection between Mark and these birds, these ambassadors from nature. But Mark doesn't fool himself about his role in the natural order of things. When Mark Bittner's birds fly away, they're not lost. They're free. Mark Bittner is now working full-time on a book and movie about the wild parrots of Telegraph Hill. For more, check out our website at bside-radio.org. That's the letter B, S-I-D-E-radio.org. That's all for this month's edition of B-Side. Our crew is Dave Gilson, Lissa Mudd, and Claudine Zapp. Tamara Keith is our senior producer. Our theme music was composed by David Kaufman. I'm your host, Mia Lobel. Thanks for listening. Dog just licked my microphone. Oh no! (laughs) Did it survive? Yeah, got a little couple hairs on it. Oh, microphones aren't good until they've been, you know, licked, licked, (laughs) dipped in soup, whatever.